Good evening, everyone. It is Thursday, March 3rd, 2022, and you are watching State of the Family Courts. My name is Mark Real, and tonight uh, we have a guest. I'm, I know she's sitting in the state of Pennsylvania right now, but barred in the state of Pennsylvania in the state of New Jersey, um, Karen Ulmer. Karen, thank you so much for coming on tonight. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I'm, I'm excited. We've had a Pennsylvania attorney on, but he was not a family law attorney. He's actually a PI attorney who had been through the system himself. Um, so a very, a very different perspective. Um, this time we're going to get the opportunity to hear in the trenches what happens and how dads can successfully navigate the family courts in the two states you're barred in. So um, new tradition, we're about a month into it, is we'll start off with some, some lighthearted questions to let the viewers kind of get to know you. So, and, and these are not pre-scripted. She doesn't know what I'm about to ask. So mm -hmm. you get one week, firm's completely shut down, nothing to worry about, where are you going? What's up? Where am I going? Where are you going on vacation? Oh, well, I generally go to Disney World because I have two children that are 10 and 11 and it is the happiest place on the earth, even though my son sometimes has meltdowns when he's there, but... Um, Probably because I've been there probably 15, 20 times, I would say chances are I'm going to Disney World. Okay, okay. I, I got that's That's a first I've had since we started doing this. We've had um, Alaska, Hawaii, and um, and Europe. So uh, the, the first Disney World. But uh, so uh, number two question here. So I guess you kind of answered it. Um, but what what ended up so you're a family law attorney now what drove you or what brought you to family law well when i was in law school i thought i was going to be a securities regulation attorney and i studied that in law school i didn't take any family law courses but in my third year of law school i found myself pregnant unexpectedly with my first child which threw me into the family law scenario so i did get married um, shortly before her birth, a month before her birth, and separated two months after her birth, um, in which case I found myself in the family court system. Um, and that really made me be able to relate um, to family law in general. And I changed the course of the direction I otherwise would have had and started working for an attorney that did family law. Yeah, we, we've never talked about this, but yeah, that's, that's very similar to to my story. I found out I was going to be a father the third year of law school. It did take me about four or five years to open my law firm and start practicing, but I had no idea family law existed while I was in law school. I worked in sports. Um, I've been joking with people that if it wasn't for my kids, I would be, I would have been down in Jupiter, Florida, negotiating the uh, collective bargaining agreement in uh, baseball this last week. But uh, it's something that's very powerful. Um, very much so that an attorney can relate because I know a lot of our peers maybe don't have that personal experience and can't relate to what the clients are going through, both men and women. Well, even so, though I, I was going to say, even though I was educated, um, you know, in law school, I didn't even know what the difference was, you know, in custody between joint custody or primary custody. And I didn't even know child support was a thing. Um, mm -hmm. So I didn't file for child support. Uh, it was just not something I experienced. I grew up in a family where my parents probably have, at this point have been married 60 years or so. Um, so it just wasn't in my realm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. That That's a very, very, very similar story to mine is like you get blindsided by it. I mean, you think about so um, you, recent law school graduate, you walk into court. What are we taught during law school? oh, this is the land of justice and the court systems get it right. And we're going to do all these great things. I'm assuming with yours, with the securities regulations, it's, it's going after these white collar criminals or being involved in that world. Mine was labor and employment. Um, and you walk into family court and it's a different world than what you've been taught or what you've been trained to do. So what we'll do is I'll, I'll turn to this. So I mentioned you're in the state of Pennsylvania. That's primarily where you practice. Um, for our viewers that are in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, where can they, they find you online? So I have a website. It's called omerlaw.com. Um, so you can find me there. 
And then um, you can also call me at my office, which, you know, my number is 215-752-6200. So, uh, but online is good. You can email me directly from the website if you have questions. Awesome. Awesome. So, um, and your bard it's, we won't get into the technicalities. Um, I know in, in the Northeast, uh, state to state things, uh, things start to merge together because everything's so close, but your bard and able to practice in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. So yeah. what we'll do is we'll turn your primary state you're in is the state of Pennsylvania. And every single week, um, I, I kind of start off the state conversation with uh, an organization by the name of the National Parents Organization. And what they do is they create a scorecard, a statutory scorecard based on the laws each state has. They grade states from F to A. Um, two sta or three states have A's now, Arkansas, Kentucky, and then Arizona's an A minus. Um, Pennsylvania, unfortunately, statutorily falls in as an F plus. Oh my um, God. Yeah, so statutorily not great, and th th this is not for fathers. This is not for mothers. This is based on what the stat, how the statute reads. Um, so it, uh, so number one they list on in the negatives is um, Pennsylvania's PTA, and I'll ask you: does does PTA ring with anything for you? The acronym. I only think of. Um you know, the parent teacher association in school, if you're saying PTA. That's why I do. So I, th I think it's the, the, the agreement. So um, ba basically to be considered having joint custody, you have to have 146 overnights um, a year. So uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's basically, there's no, there's, there's not much in the way of structuring in terms of guaranteeing um, both parents are going to remain in their child's life. So, I start, the, I, I frame it in that way because the first question I always ask is a dad um, walks into your office and we'll just say a, a dad who has been served with divorce papers. That's the most common that walks into my office. Mm -hmm. um, what are the first things you tell him and warn him about in the state of Pennsylvania? Well, as, a, as to custody, I mean, I do tell them, I, you know, I'm surprised it's an F minus, um, it is very pro 50-50, but there are factors that the court considers regarding custody. I mean, there was a house bill that was proposed that would make the presumption of joint physical custody yep. where a judge would have to submit a reason if they didn't do 50-50, but that failed. That bill failed um, because you don't want to just automatically assume every dad or mother is fit for 50-50 custody. But what I tell my clients is that it's, a, you know, the court is blind as to gender. And in practice, I find that is the case. What is most important is that you have the belief that you and, and the conviction that you should have custody, whether it's 50-50 or primary, and that you not give up. I tell my clients that they need to be in it for the long haul. Court takes time. And I have had dads you know, that got 50-50, that didn't see their kids for two months because the other side filed a frivolous protection from abuse. And it may have taken them a year to get through court, but if they were prepared mentally, they believed that she, they should have 50-50, and they took the case to trial and did the things they needed to do, that person walked away with 50-50. I have lots of dads who have primary custody because not every mother should have their children most of the time. It's really based on the facts and you need to prepare your evidence. You need to be prepared to fight in court and not be afraid of a trial if you really want your children. A lot of men that I come across that want their children are afraid to stand up to the mother. They're afraid to litigate. And sometimes that's the only way you're going to get your fair share of the time. I agree with that. I, I want to, I want to hold, hold on that one is so the number of men. So, and I know our viewer base, a lot of you guys are, are actively litigating. You're trying to do these things, false allegations, the whole nine yards. There is a large chunk of, of men who one of two things occur. Number one is that they are terrified of what mom will do if they pursue this. Number two is they aren't willing to make the sacrifices required. 
Um, I recently had a case where we ended, we actually got 50-50 custody for dad, but he refused to take a step back from work. And so we went in on a checkup three months later and mom's like, hey, he drops the kids off every single morning that's after he has them overnight to go to school. And the judge is like, this makes no sense. So I know the comments are blowing up right now in terms of because in general, we it's a group of fighters here and you guys are looking for knowledge. You guys are looking for information. You have to understand there is a I would call it a, a silent majority of guys who just assume that they're going to get screwed. They aren't willing to put in that effort and understand that being a parent, not just a father, but being a parent that stays in it for the long haul is a, a very, very difficult thing to do. And it's something that, that parents who do that should be lauded for. So you brought up a really good point though, in terms of gathering evidence and it being about the facts. It's really, really hard for anybody in family court to separate emotion from facts. What are some tips you can give to guys in regards to um, gathering evidence, recording things? What are kind of some of your go-dos you give your clients? I mean, what I always, you know, I believe in entering a lot of exhibits into a trial. So I tell my clients always to take photographs, photographs of their home, photographs of their children, activities they're doing with their children, activities that they have their children do with other children. And I present those pictures to try to paint a picture for the court of what life is like in dad's home or, you know, regardless, I don't just represent dads, but it's very important that the judge sees those pictures and sees how happy the children are. Um, the other type of evidence that we routinely have submitted in a custody case are text messages, emails with the other party, um, because you really need to keep track of those things because you never know, especially in family court, people make up stuff, they lie. And having the text message or the email to back things up is critical in a trial. Um, so those are things, you know, I've had, you know, 50 exhibits in a custody trial. You really need to present your case, not just walk in the court saying, I'm entitled, you know, because of this. Other records that you get are doctor's appointments. The court's looking to see who is the person that's engaged with the child going to the child's appointments. So you bring in the doctor's records. It will show who was at the appointment, who was engaged. You may want to bring in a teacher. You may want to bring in other parents to testify that you're the person that goes to the activities. Um, because it's all about who's involved with the children and what's in their best interest. So the more engaged you are in your children's lives, you know, the more evidence you're going to have. Um, you know, so I bring it all in. Yeah, I think my clients probably get annoyed. I'm a big fan of bring me the family photos. Um, let's enter the family photos in um, and let's make the judge make a decision when they have your kids with you smiling, looking at you, having fun, going to Disney, whatever it may be. Um, and then a lot of dads, I, I see this, I was sitting in court last week and a dad may have had a really good case, but all he was doing was talking. He didn't bring any evidence to back this up. Um, he just said, Hey, I have this evidence that shows mom drinks with the kids. I have this evidence that shows that there's been domestic violence, but where, where was that evidence that that evidence needed to be in front of the judge? So um, when it when it comes to and, and we got a lot of people that are that are popping in here, uh, TJ, love the photo idea. Uh, Deshaun, extracurricular activities, getting teachers, principals subpoenaed to testify in your favor. I had a case involving that. So let's just say dad hasn't necessarily been involved in the medical. You know, when you're in a relationship, you play. I lost the sound. I can't hear you. Mark, you're on mute. I think you're on mute. I can't hear you. Your mute symbol's up. 
All right, there we go. Yeah, my, my mic accidentally unplugged there. Um, so uh, a lot, I get a lot of cases, and I want to get your opinion on this. So you have a dad who has played a role, and maybe his role was he was the primary breadwinner. That's vastly, that's changing very rapidly with the number of women that are graduating from college and with advanced degrees. Starting to see a lot more moms that are the breadwinners, but still the majority is dad comes in. He was the breadwinner. He maybe didn't go to the doctor's appointments. He didn't handle the orthodontist. He wasn't the one signing them up for extracurricular activities. What advice would you give a dad who maybe that was his role as he starts to go through the divorce process? Well, as he's going through the divorce process, you know, everybody's circumstances change because you're now in separate homes. So it would be the same thing. It doesn't matter what the past was. The court, by the time you get to court, you've got a good year to build up a new pattern. And they're looking at what's happening now, not as much as what happened in the past. And sometimes that sucks for someone that maybe did all the work in the past, but you really would tell them to get engaged. Like, I told people today, you know, you can go to gymnastics, you know, is what I told someone today, even though you don't have your child, just go watch your child at gymnastics, get engaged. You care, you have contact with her. Um, it doesn't matter if you don't have custody, you can show up for events that your children are scheduled for, even when it's not your time. There's nothing to prevent you unless there's a protection from abuse to be fully engaged with your children to email the teachers, hey, how's my you know child doing in school? There's a lot of things you could do to show that you're actively involved in your children's lives, even if they're not with you. Um, sending your children letters, presents, you know, remembering their birthday, um, you know, anything. Like I really like that you can do video now, you know. So instead of having a call with your child, you could play video. I tell my clients. Get involved with your kids when they're other parents home. If your children are of the age where they're playing games, you know, you can get in Roblox with your children in real time. These kids are playing online in the metaverse and you can play Roblox with your child while your child's in the other person's home. And probably the mom has no idea that you're even playing with them because a lot of parents don't get involved in the video games, yeah. but you could still have that connection with your child. Um, because they're having connections with a lot of people in the metaverse, like either Fortnite or Roblox. And it's really a good way to connect with your child. So I tell them like, you know, do as much as you can to be involved in their life, even if you're not with them at that moment. Yeah, I love that. I have a client who um, actually kind of got uh, reunited with their child and built a relationship by playing Fortnite. Um, they started out a couple of times hopping on the internet and playing Fortnite together and it became a nightly thing. And it ultimately led to, I was literally the day the child turned 18. They said, Hey, I'm going to go live with dad now. Um, after having essentially for 18 years lived with mom. So I think you're dead on. There's so many ways with technology that, uh, that you can stay active and stay involved or the old school way, like you mentioned. Coach their sports teams, just go to dance practice, do whatever to just be around them, even if it's not your parenting time. So let me let me pull up here. So I'll kind of go on a tangent off of that. Um, I, mean, I got a question up here that I think tied really, really closely to this. And it may have been deleted, but ba basically the premise of the question was, if you're, say, the targeted parent in terms of you have a, a protective order against you, um, in walk me through in Pennsylvania. Obviously, we're talking about situations where there's no issues with being wherever you want, whenever you want. Um, walk, walk us through how the protective order process works in the state of Pennsylvania. So in the state of Pennsylvania, if someone alleges that they've been abused, you would get a temporary order, possibly. The courts do, I, I feel they hand the, the temporary orders out too readily. Um, it can include that a custody provision where you don't see your children. In Pennsylvania, you have to have a hearing within 10 days if someone files for protection from abuse. So that's going to get filed and heard the following week, generally. Um, and at that hearing, the person would have to approve, you know, prove that there's been abuse. 
um, if the child is included. A lot of times judges will look to see if this is really a custody issue um, or not. So if it's a custody issue, the person might get a protection from abuse, but then they'll make it go to custody court regarding the children. But if the child is put on a custody, you know, if the child's put on the protection order, um, you can still go to family court and file for custody and have it go through the custody court. And the saddest part is when somebody doesn't realize they have that right. So I have had people come in my office, a dad that maybe had a protection order for two years and didn't try to pursue any contact with his child for two years because he just didn't know that you could go still to custody court and to try to get contact because the custody order is going to trump the provisions in the protection from abuse order. Um, so it's really important to understand that they're two separate things and you want to file in that custody court, even if there's a PFA in place, but they are the most abused for custody purposes. So I think the courts are catching on to that and they're always looking to see our children involved. Is this really a custody issue and denying PFAs if it is a custody issue, but not always, you know, sometimes the PFA does get entered. And it really was all about custody. It gives someone a leg up to get a jump start on getting custody of their child. Um, so it's really important if you get hit with a PFA, the other part of it is that you litigate it. Because if you go to court, a lot of times in Pennsylvania, they're going to try to sell you to just take an agreement because it's not criminal, it's just civil. And it's really important that you try your case in Pennsylvania because a lot of times it's a protection from abuse is a PFA, but a lot of times they don't have enough evidence um, and it, it does prejudice you. So if children are involved, I, I would always recommend that unless you are guilty of violence, that you have a hearing and never just agree to, you know, just agree to it. Because the problem in court in general is that they try to push agreements instead of hearings because they can't hear every case. Um, but you know, you could really prejudice yourself if you agree to something because it's sometimes hard to change it in the future. And it sets a precedent. Yeah, I always tell guys in, in family court, the status quo is very, very powerful. Um, and the biggest mistake you can make, whether it be a PFA, we call them domestic violence restraining orders here in California, is to just kind of lay down and be annoyed and be frustrated and not do anything on on the custody piece. So turning back to um, kind of the beginnings of the process, you mentioned it takes time. And I think a lot of larger states or population centers, um, it's delay. California can be anywhere from three to six months before you get your first time in front of a judge. Um, what does the initial, so you file for custody and you go into court, what does that initial hearing look like in Pennsylvania? Well, in Pennsylvania, every county has their own local rules. So I'm in the Philadelphia area and I practice in the Philadelphia and the surrounding suburbs. So every court is different. If you're in the county I'm in, which is in Bucks, you're gonna to go to a conference and you'll probably get there maybe in six weeks. And if it's an emergency, you might get there in three. Um, but if you're in Philadelphia, good luck. You might be waiting 11 months before you're in court. Um, you know, it's just, they have so much volume that, um, you know, it's really difficult. And then every court is different. You might not go, you might go to mediation. In Montgomery County, you're required to go to mediation and meet with a mediator. So every, every little county is different, um, but generally you'll go to a lower level proceeding first and see if you can work out an agreement. And then after you go through that process, then you would get scheduled in front of a judge and a judge can enter an order. But, you know, you might have to go through a counseling process with a recommendation on custody by a psychologist before you even get to the judge. So that's why I said it can take a really long time to get through the court process. And the things you agree to in the interim in a temporary order, even though it's temporary and without prejudice, it can set a precedent because by the time you get to court, it's a year later and a court might not wanna disrupt the schedule of the child at that point. So sometimes it's better to not just agree to some temporary order and let the judge decide the temporary until you can get through the full process 
if you're going to sell yourself short. Yeah, that that's definitely uh, out, out here. We have uh, it's not even in L.A. County. It's San Bernardino County. It takes six to seven months to get to mediation and seven to eight months to get in front of a judge. So if, if a dad comes in and there's not a custody order in place, what, what would be some, some and, and I think not an uncommon situation is mom's restricting access or limiting it to certain times. What type of advice would you give to a parent who's maybe struggling through having limited access during that prolonged lead up to being in court? Well, what I tell my clients is to make sure they have a good support system, you know, family and friends, because it is a long struggle. And I would also tell them not to agree to anything in writing. So it's going to be hard and you reach out to the other side to try to get contact, but you don't want to agree to anything in writing because once you do, the, you know, it's harder for the court then to hear your case because you've got something temporary. And it's, you know, if you don't have something in writing, you have a great chance of getting a judge to enter a fair order while you're going through the process. So it, it's really hard for the people that aren't seeing their children because they're at the most risk to take anything. And they're going to take, you know, maybe a night when they could have got 50-50 if they just waited, you know, the six weeks to get in front of, you know, if you're not seeing your child at all, they will send it to a judge at some point. So you might go to that conference, but then they'll get you in front of a judge. And you might get a lot more if you just buy the time. So giving up that six weeks of not seeing your child in the long run will be better for you than taking in writing, uh, you know, a night or two or whatever little bit that they offer you. Um, so it's really, I mean, it's kind of a game in a sense, which is sad, but you got to be in it for the long haul and you can't sell yourself short and you can't put it in writing. You know, that's what I tell them. You got to like, look, you got to look, you know, in a year or two years, how are you going to feel when you have 50, 50, don't just take a night because that's all that's being offered and you're in pain and you haven't seen your child because in the long run, in a year from now, you might only have that day because you can't get the court. But if somebody's completely withholding, they'll get you in court sooner for a temporary order. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think the biggest struggle out here is in California, the way we do the domestic violence side of things is that you file and the judge either grants a temporary or denies the temporary. Very, very low bar to get a temporary um, granted. But if you get it granted, you may not be able to see your kids for three to four weeks. Um, you get a hearing within 30 days, but that that's that might be the most challenging 30 days of someone's life is out of nowhere, the courts say you're not allowed to see your kids. And I think the support system thing is a huge deal. I tell my clients one of two things needs to occur. Number one is you need to go get a therapist. You need to have someone to talk to weekly. Or number two, you need to get someone you completely trust and say, I'm about to go through a lot. I'm going to share everything with you. Are you okay with me venting to you about the situation? Because a lot of times the parents who don't do one of those two things end up venting towards their co-parent. Let's say their struggles in the parenting relationship, or they have one explosion where you send off nasty text messages. You call them a dozen times. You end up with the PFA. You end up with the domestic violence restraining order, and it's an uphill battle. So um, what, I'll, what we'll turn to next um, in terms of I want to go back to the evidence piece because I thought your earlier first answer, you gave a very, very strong point in terms of evidence. Mm -hmm. So how do you determine what it, what will be impactful in front of the judge in terms of evidence and what won't? Um, I, I Sometimes clients will bring in hundreds of pages and pictures and text messages and everything. Um, what are you really, what should dads be looking for in communications with their co-parents photographs, and just really any evidence they may be procuring through the process? Well, I mean, things that people, you know, first off, if it's an initial filing, it's one thing different than a modification. If it's a modification, it can only be evidence from the time of the last order. So people will bring in things, you know, that are from prior to the last order. The judge doesn't want to hear anything prior to the last order. 
because it's already been heard or had the opportunity to be heard. So recency is also something you look for. You know, I don't really care as much what happened two years ago. It's really what's happening now, what happened in the last six months. Um, you know, so you're definitely, recency probably is the most important thing because that's what, you know, you're basing custody off of what's happening now. <coughs> you know, looking at the photographs, you know, when someone takes photographs, looking, you know, important ones would be the child's bedroom, you know, the home, outside of the home, what the, you know, where the child's going to live. Um, you know, other pieces of evidence are maps, how often, you know, like where the school's located, how long it takes you to get the child, if, you know, from your home to the school, how far away the homes are from each other. So that is another, I didn't mention that earlier, but um, that is another standard piece of evidence um, to kind of show, you know, what makes sense or where your work is from the school, how quickly you can get to the child if there's an emergency, how, you know, long it takes for the commute. You know, you know, there was one case where it was like an hour in heavy traffic, um, you know, for the other side. So you want to show like there's accidents. It's a, a highway, whereas the other parent lives much closer. Um, so so those kind of pieces of evidence, um, as far as like text messages or emails, it really depends on the content of those things. If you're able to disprove something that somebody said either in a pleading or, you know, they're going to bring up. Um, those would be ones that we would want to enter. Um, but sometimes I, I have additional exhibits that we just don't enter. I'd rather have more than enough than not enough, because like I said, sometimes you don't know what the other side is going to bring up. Um, and we have what's called an Our Family Wizard app that is used frequently and ordered by court, mm -hmm. um, where the parties exchange communications on this app and their attorneys can see it, um, you know, but it's geared towards the child. So if they're using the Our Family Wizard app, I usually have them print up all the emails because you don't know what somebody else is going to bring in um, to court. Yeah, and I'll bring this up. So Jim Jim uh, made a comment um, in regards to you need to paint the picture past and present. Can you, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with you that recency is a huge deal. Can you break down kind of how a judge will say takes in if you're presenting evidence from three years ago rather than say three months ago? So, I mean, we do, if it's an initial pleading, definitely you need to bring in the past. So you've never been to court. So you're going to be talking about what happened at birth or even five years ago, because that is your initial pleading. That what I was talking about as far as recency is on a modification. You're barred from bringing in stuff from the past, but everything from the past is very relevant for an initial pleading. Um, what happened or if the child was hurt at some age, you know, anything and everything that you can use from the past for your initial pleading, we do bring in um, to show you know, whatever we're trying to show, like if the mom's drinking, you might be bringing in pictures of mom drinking passed out on the couch or bottles of liquor that are all over the house. And maybe it was three years ago, but it just shows that pattern. That's for your initial hearing. If it's a modification, like I said, it's really hard to bring up the past. You might be able to bring in your court order from the, the current order, and we always enter that in. Um, you know, and like I said, a lot of times you're going in Pennsylvania, you're going to have the psychological report and they bring up everything from the past. So even if the judge doesn't want to hear it from before the order, you can get around it in that report, which is admissible. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those things that I, 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 I refer to it as stale. If you're going in for that modification, in theory, all of that evidence, all of those issues that you've had in the past should have been pre previously brought up. And um, I think, Jim, you kind of um, doubling up or back on your point. Um, this is exactly what Karen was talking about. When you have a history of abuse, um, whether it be drugs, substances with the children, that's something you're going to bring up, especially if it's occurring today. Um, I'll share an extreme example of I had something that a judge completely ignored um, where there had been um, violence between the couple where the mom had initiated and there were police reports that showed that, that was the case, but it was five, six years old. 
And the first time dad decided to bring it up was five years into the custody case. So the judge in their head is saying, why wasn't this brought to my attention sooner? You're, you're just digging for something now, where if you have something from three weeks ago that happened uh, and you run into court on an emergency basis, there was some sort of violence, the judge is going to take that much more seriously. Um, because there comes a point when it, it's the question that in my head a judge is going to be asking is, why wasn't this brought in front of us? before now. So I'll, I'll kind of, um, I want to want to twist to this because this is something that a lot of dads get tied up in. You mentioned psychological evaluations. So walk us through what does that mean and how common are they in the state of Pennsylvania? Well, I mean, like I said, I primarily practice in Bucks County. They are routine here. They won't hear your case unless you've had one done. Um, other counties, not so much. Like if you're going to Philadelphia, they're not required. But what's involved with it is they have a list of people or you can hire someone. So you have a choice. You can either hire the one through the court, which is a lot cheaper, um, or you can hire a private person, which is much more expensive. And you'd have to bring that person to testify. But they do a complete background from your childhood. They're asking you questions about your childhood, your background, um, going through that whole family history of you growing up, and then they get into the issues related to the child and your marriage or non-marriage if you're un unwed. Um, they will interview the child. They will interview the other party. And they try to come to an agreement if they can. And if they can't, they make recommendations. They may have collateral witnesses as part of that process. So if you're living with someone like a a step parent, or if you're living with your parents, because some people are doing that, they would interview those people as well as part of the process to gather as much information as they can as to what's going on and then make a recommendation. And unfortunately, some judges take those recommendations to heart. Um, but again, I tell people don't be discouraged if the recommendation's not in your favor because it's only one piece of evidence. You can still use all those other things I said to try to prove your case. But it's a good tool to give the background. And sometimes like it'll also help you identify what the other side's gonna say. Yeah, well, that's substantial. Uh that's uh in California we have a similar process, but it ends up costing parents anywhere from ten to forty, fifty thousand dollars to do a child custody evaluation is what we call it. That would encompass that. So that's that's interesting that that in some counties in Pennsylvania, it's just automatic right off the bat. How long do those evaluations take? Those evaluations, uh, you could pay extra under certain circumstances to have them expedited, but usually it might take. From the time you agree to go, it might be a month or two before you get scheduled and then maybe four months through the process. And then they write up a report, which could take a couple of months. So that's why I said it takes a while to get in court, because until you have the report, you can't get your hearing scheduled. Wow. Yeah. So you mentioned a point if the if a, an evaluation doesn't go in your favor. So the common one out here in California is we have mandatory mediation before any child custody hearing, whether it be the initial hearing or whether it be a modification. So usually depending on the county, anywhere between a month and 10 days prior to your hearing, you meet with a social worker that's going to try to mediate the situation, but in many counties will then make a recommendation. And that recommendation in California, at least kind of start is the starting point. That's where the judge is going to start. And you're going to argue off of that. So if a dad gets an unfavorable evaluation, we call them recommendations out here, or unfavorable recommendation. What are some tips and tricks for dads in terms of um, turning those unfavorable evaluations into smaller parts of, of what's ultimately going to happen in their case? Well, I mean, every report would be different. So if it's unfavorable, you got to see how far off it is from what the goal is. Um, it may be unfavorable because you want primary, but it's recommending joint. It might be unfavorable because you want joint and it's recommending less than that. 
Um, so what I do is I go through it to see if there's any holes or facts that the other side um, tried to make as fact that weren't true and then try to disprove those things when you get the court. Um, and, and it's really going through in detail that report. And you're not allowed to give a copy of that report out if you're going through the one through the court system. So the client has to come in the office to read it. And they, they do that because they don't want it to fall in the hands of the children or be shared or used as a weapon uh, because it does have a lot of sensitive stuff. So if somebody had, you know, issues in their family with their parents, you know, they're taking that detailed you know, backstory, and it might not be something you want to share with the children. So going through the report, spending that time to prepare. The other part of it is because these reports are used by the judges, like you said, in California, and it's, you know, they kind of go off of that. And some judges don't, you know, they kind of take it, oh, they did that report. So we're going to go with whatever that person said. Yeah. I think it's really important to prepare for those sessions, you know, go to those meetings with a psychologist with your exhibits, you know, so that if they do take them, they already see the pictures, you know, think of it as this isn't your trial, but it kind of is. Um, and you want to make sure that you're painting that picture in the social worker or psychologist's mind who was going to write that report by having the kind of exhibit you would bring the trial with you when you go for those sessions. Yeah, I think the, the the big takeaway I take from that is that if you do get something that's unfavorable in front of the judge, preparation is key. Um, and making sure that you're presenting your side of the story, maybe more, I'll, I'll say your side of the story more effectively than say that report is. So um, what we'll do now is, um, want to take a few questions, Karen? Yeah, sure. Does anybody have any questions? Yeah, so drop them in. We got a few. I'm about to pick a couple of them out here, and we'll dive in on those topics. So this is a good one. It's specific to my state, um, but Levi here um, has a question. Um, so well, I guess Levi via Bobby's, uh, Facebook page. Uh, so, <laughs> so you've had, so it, it sounds like Levi's had primary custody or sole custody for four years and the other parent is coming back into the situation. Um, what can be done to navigate that? So I'll, I'll start out. Um, it is California question. Um, this is something that is unfortunately not common. Uh, we, we do have clients where this has been the case for various reasons. Um, courts, unless the kid's older in California, at least the courts are probably barring some circumstance going to give the other parent a chance to be back in the child's life. Uh, but what you need to do is, is look at it through the child's eyes. Um, a lot of times it's going to be very slow buildup. It's not going to be one of those situations where, uh, they're going to say 50, 50 right away. But, uh, I, I would say you need to at least have an open mind in terms of what, uh, what involvement you would want the other parent to have. And if they're serious, because the question I would have, um, I said, we have clients that, that exactly like this, that mom's trying to come back in and, the question is, is this a flavor of the month? Is this to just lower child support? Is she going to be in and out again like she has been in the past? Um, but I, I would I would say that number one is keep an open mind and then understand that if you're doing all the things right and you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, it it's probably, at least in California, not going to be a situation where there's really even a hope to get back to 50-50 custody or anything near that. So I'll turn it over to you, to Karen. Um, situations where there's been a long gap in uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, what do those look like and what do you typically see out of them? Well, I, I agree with what you said. I can't really answer, you know, the California, but um, when there has been a gap, same thing. Like, what are the motives for the person coming back that hasn't seen their child? Because all the studies show that 
parents that are involved, two parents that are involved is better and is in the best interest of the children. So you want to protect your child, but at the same time, you want to be open-minded, like you said, that this could be beneficial for your child. Maybe the person had a drug issue and they've recovered. That does happen. So you kind of got to see what are those motivations and be open to it. At the same time, you want to protect the child from any future harm if the person's not going to be consistent, if they're going to go back to using drugs or just for whatever reason. It could just be, you know, I've seen moms more interested in pursuing a new relationship than their child. So it could be a multiple of reasons why um, the person has been absent. So, so I think, like you said, like kind of see what the motives are, be open to it and as far as the courts, they're not going to get primary custody. They're looking at precedence. You know, they don't want to disrupt the stability of the child, but they may get time and you might not used to be sharing that time. And you got to get open to the fact that they might have some of the time that you, you know, used to have all to yourself and think of it that it might be good for the child because all children want to know both of their parents, even parents that aren't good. You know, that's what makes a child feel secure, um, but you also want to protect them. So if the person is doing drugs, you ask for a regular drug screening test, make sure the person's recovered, um, you know, and if they're not consistent and they're not showing up, then you would go back to court and the court's probably not going to give them the time that they're looking for. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. So uh andrew's got a good question here and we'll, we'll I'll, I'll pass it to you first so in pennsylvania if you get an unfavorable report can you request another one be done you can you can get your own private report if you did the one through the court to try to show that you know something was missing sometimes if there's an unfavorable report you can go back to the person that wrote it because they might have misconstrued some of the facts and asked for a follow-up um you know, but a lot of times people don't have money to do that. It costs money to get the report in the first place. So if you can try to discredit the report, sometimes that's a better option. Yeah, that, that's definitely a, a big issue in California. When you have the child custody evaluations, uh, you do have the ability once the initial report that usually both parents have to split the cost for, you could in theory go out and get a, another report done. So it's an option, but an, unfortunately um, an issue with the system is that uh, the money involved usually makes it very challenging for that to occur. So you mentioned substance abuse, so we'll follow up on that. So um, best to hire a PI for alcohol consumption per week, just social drinking. Um, so we'll kind of break that into two. So when there's substance issues involved, um, what can a parent do? And then how do you deal with social drinking of your clients and then social drinking of maybe opposing party? So, you know, things you can request would be routine, you know, drug or alcohol testing if there's a problem, but you got to establish that there's a problem. That, that's the harder part. So some people will get documentation showing that somebody spent X dollars on alcohol on their credit card or bank account a month. Some people have pictures, like I said, of just empty bottles everywhere. Um, so taking photographs or, you know, just questioning the person on the stand. Um, you know, I had one case where the woman was drinking vodka out of a water bottle outside of a liquor store and um, someone saw her. And I didn't have that person there to testify, but asking her questions, you know, were you doing these things? You know, the person doesn't know you don't have a witness coming next to testify that they saw her doing it. But, um, you know, people that might be able to testify, you might have to involve third parties who will be able to say this person's in my bar or I've seen this person out all the time um, to corroborate that kind of evidence. But what you can do if they have a problem is, like I said, ask for regular drug testing, alcohol testing. You might ask for them to go and rehab. Okay. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, if you if you're able to prove those things up, I mean, in, in California, if you're able to even prove one instance of of 
issues with substances or alcohol, you can usually get an order that says nothing 12 hours before or during parenting time. And either the ability to, like with alcohol, a lot of times the ability to um, administer or require the other parent to take a sobriety test or take a breathalyzer test. Um, so there, there are different ways to, to do that. And so, Jim, I'll kind of piece out his question here because I want to get to one of your other ones, Jim. Um, but uh, so if you have those substance issues and you can't, say, afford a PI, what, what are some options in terms of showing that there may be a substance issue? If you can't afford a PI, I mean, like I said, I would bring in other people that have witnessed the person's behaviors. Um, you know, people have testified that the smell of alcohol when they went to pick up, even you could testify if it's the other parent. Um, there's always a trail, um, you know, whether they're stumbling behavior, I would comb the police reports to see, you know, if there's been any incidences with the parent. I mean, that's clear proof. Yeah, I think that it makes it tough. And, and I will say the one piece I would give uh, all the viewers is if you're going to come with substance abuse allegations, uh, you better have some receipts. So if you're just walking into court saying there's a substance mm -hmm. issue, you're going to struggle. Um, and in, in California, at least a lot of times it's going to going to get dismissed as you're just saying things. Um this is where maybe some past evidence. I mean, if you're you're obviously probably around this person significantly more, maybe you have photographs of drug use. Um, I've seen that come up before where it was, uh, what's this white powder on the table? And, and why are, why do you have a dollar bill rolled up in the picture um, situation that, that actually occurred? And that that automatically a judge is always going to act in the safest um, in terms of keeping the child safe. So that ultimately flagged and we got drug screens. She ended up testing positive and is on supervised visitation. We didn't have any proof that she was taking hard drugs at the time, but a three-year-old picture opened the door and showed us she had about every drug in the world in her system. Um, so you, sometimes you have to get creative if, if you can't afford necessarily some of the tools. And I would say I agree with that. I actually, you know, had someone testify that they saw the child roll up a dollar bill, tap it at both ends, and it was enough for the court to believe that that parent had shown the child or the child had witnessed, you know, the drug usage. Yeah. And then TJ made a good comment, and I, I agree with you here, TJ. Um, bank statements, um, a lot of times... Uh, Cash withdrawals can raise questions. Um, obviously, subpoenaing any potential video footage or let's say there was police involvement, body cam footage. It takes time, um, but we live in a society today that not much is unrecorded. So you can usually, if you, you search deep enough, there's something there. It's a matter of, of finding it. So we'll, we'll wrap up here. We'll take one more question. Um, TJ, is that legal? I'm assuming to your question. Uh, yeah, every state's evidence rules are slightly different, but um, security cam footage, I'm not aware of a state where you can't get something like that in. And I'm not aware of a state where you can't subpoena bank records, um, at least recent bank records of the other party. So it would just be a matter of going through the process. Every state's different. Um, and especially with, say, security footage, uh, or things of that nature, it may take a significant amount of time for them actually to get coughed up by the business or the entity that has them. So I got Jim, I told you I was going to get back to your question. I think you um, asked, asked a really good question and, and I'll, I'll, Karen, I'll give you the option if you want to go first or you want to go after me on this one. So how do you handle a narcissist on the stand? A lot of times we use the word narcissist in a situation where it's there, they potentially lie or they morph or change their story around um, or are willing to just flat out lie. So how, how do you, if, if opposing parties kind of slippery and isn't being 100% truthful, what are some things that can be done to make the judge aware of that? 
Well, I think preparation is key, like I said, and that's why we go through all the text messages and emails, because in order to prove that the person's lying, you need to have something to present to them. And I think cross-examination is key with a narcissist uh, because they're not prepared for the questions that you're gonna ask them. And it, you have to be able to disprove what they're saying. And a lot of times they'll say something and then you show them a text message or an email and, and they're so far gone that they don't even remember sending them or that you're gonna have that evidence. So. I think that's when you're dealing with somebody like that, you need to print up every single communication and comb through them in detail and then get them on cross-examination. One of my favorites, this is probably my favorite tip on this specific topic that a mentor in, in terms of litigation taught me. And if someone plays fast and loose with the truth, especially on cross-examination, don't go chronologically. You can bounce around, go from point to point. It's much easier for someone who's going to be slippery on the stand to keep the story flowing from start to finish. But if you go to say incident number five, and then you go to incident number two, and then maybe you go to number three and back to number one, it makes it hard for them to keep their story straight. Um, so that that's one of my favorite things in terms of cross-examination is you don't have to go chronologically. And if you make it about specific events and um, as Karen has said, you actually have the receipts, you have the proof to be able to, in legal terms, we call it, impeach them, prove that they're lying, go event by event that you can catch them lying, not chronologically. So that, that's, that's something that's worked for me, um, that was taught to me that, that I would say is something that um, has been very effective with those that are fast and loose with the truth. So we I think, you think we got time for one more, Karen? Yeah, sure. Okay, got I got one. I got a good one here um, from uh, Stephanie. So, how does a judge handle a dad who's nervous but's provided all the evidence? So, well, I guess we can kind of break that down in terms of. Um, yeah, how, how do you think that reacts? How do you think that impacts things? And then maybe what can a parent do to calm their nerves? Because obviously this is one of the most stressful moments of their life. Well, I don't know, um, you know, what they mean by a dad who's nervous, if you mean that they're afraid to speak up or, or whatnot. But I think sometimes it depends on the judge. You know, some judges are great. And they will start asking questions or they'll tell them, do you need a minute? Um, you know, but not everybody, you know, honestly, not everybody's going to be that way. You know, so you've got to mentally prepare before you go in there, because if, you know, I don't know how the person's expressing nervousness, but, um, you know, I think that you could ask for a break and a judge would give you one. Um, but, they're also judging whether you can handle a child. So, you know, it's really hard to say because you don't, not all judges are really gonna be compassionate about that. But, um, you know, if you have an attorney, I would have your attorney ask for a break and sit next to you, um, take things slowly, you know, try to refocus. Yeah, I think I, dead on there. I mean, there are some judges who are very empathetic and understand that you're under a lot of stress and they'll help walk through it so they can get the information they need. If, it, if you realize your judge isn't one of those, um, like I said, I, I, very few judges, at least if you do it once during your hearing, if you just say, your honor, can we take a, a brief break, um, are usually going to allow you to step outside, get a drink, catch your breath, try to calm your nerves. Um, so that, that's some great advice from Karen there. So we're closing in on the hour mark. Um, before we leave off here, Karen, um, I want you again, uh, can you give uh, the viewers where they can find you and where they can get a hold of you at? Yeah, sure. So as I said in the beginning, you, I have a website at omerlaw.com, but since you're all on Facebook, I also do have a Facebook page. Karen Ann Omer PC is the name of my Facebook page. And I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram. So there's a lot of ways you can find me online. 
Awesome, awesome. So, Garen, thank you so much um, for uh, spending a little bit of your Thursday night with us, dropping some knowledge on the viewers. Um, and I really appreciate that. To the viewers, um, thank you again for watching. And uh, we will be back next Thursday uh, with another episode of the State of the Family Courts. We'll talk to everyone later. All right. Thanks, Mark.